Well, good morning. Uh, I'm, my name is John Fannerstill, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Woodridge. And I know a good many of you, but there's a lot of you I don't know. And so for those of you that I don't, that I only know as faces, uh, I want to just take a minute or two here to introduce myself to you. Um, my wife Lori and I have been members here at Woodridge for 24 years. And uh, the two of us have been Christians for something on the order of 45 years. We both came to faith in Christ back in the uh, early 70s when we were college students. And uh, we've been married for 37 years. And throughout that time, as are in a lot of marriages, there's been many ups and downs. There's been lots of very happy times and there have been lots of challenges. But through it all, God has consistently demonstrated his love and his faithfulness to us. We still love Jesus with all our hearts, and we're still following him after all these years. And presuming to speak as someone who's been around the block a few times and has had a few life experiences, I just want to reassure you all that Jesus is so worth it. Living for Jesus Christ is the best life there is. And I can honestly say that I would not trade places with anyone, nor would I change a thing. God is just so, so good. Lori and I have one daughter, and together with her wonderful husband, they have blessed us with six incredible grandchildren. Uh, the youngest of those grandchildren, our little grandson Elias, is due to make his entrance any day now. Uh, Becky was due uh, the day after Thanksgiving, so Friday. And so she's very, very pregnant, and as they say, she is ready to pop. So we are very much looking forward to the arrival of our new little, our new little guy. My wife is back there, and she's going to give me the high sign if we get a text message. So we're on, we're on baby watch right now. But uh, So that's me. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our ongoing series on Paul's letter to the Colossians. And today we find ourselves nearing the end of chapter 1, with verses 21, 22, and 23 being our text. When we started this back in September, Luke told you we were going to go through this slowly, and, and we are. Uh, we're, really, we're really digging into Colossians. And so we've got 21, 22, and 23 of chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, please open it to Colossians 1. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there are a number of them in the racks underneath the seats in front of you. And I'd encourage you to grab one of those, open it up, and um, turn with us to Colossians 1. In the Pew Bible there, you will find it on page 983. This is the Word of God. May we hear it and receive it as such. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
Before we start, let's pray and ask God to give us understanding. Oh God, our Father, we can do nothing apart from you. We acknowledge our total and complete dependence upon you. You provide everything we need for life and for growth. You provide us with the food we eat and the air we breathe. You are sovereign. You are holy. You are our king. Give us understanding as we listen for what you have to say to us from your written word this morning. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Before we get started into today's passage, I thought it might be good to go back and just do a quick little review of where we've been in Colossians. Uh, you may recall that this book, uh, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Colossae. And it was written around 62 AD while Paul was in prison in Rome. Now, Paul did not know these people. He'd never met them. He'd never even been to Colossae. This was not one of the churches that Paul started. And I find it interesting that even though Paul didn't start the Colossian church himself, he was just as concerned about it as he was for the churches he did have a hand in starting. Um, his concern for the Colossians, people he never met, is no different than his concern for the churches he knew well and had a hands-on relationship with. And that's kind of unusual. You know, usually we, we tend to put our emphasis on things that we're involved in, but here he was concerned for the church, concerned for a church he, he really had nothing to do with in starting it. And we, one of the things he was concerned about was that he had heard false teaching was creeping into this church. We don't know exactly what the false teaching was, whether it was good works, acts of devotion, or certain kinds of religious rituals, but it was very clear that there were people coming in, outsiders coming in, or even possibly people inside the church who were teaching that something else in addition to faith in Christ, was necessary in order to have a full and complete experience of salvation. To put it in today's terms, it was almost as if they were saying, okay, it's great. It's great that you're saved and that you have Jesus. I'm happy for you. But if you really, really want to experience Christ, you have to, do, you have, you have to read this book that my friend's pastor wrote. This will really... This is going to really make it real to you. Or you have to watch this video series that's out. That'll make it real to you. <clears throat> or it was something other than Christ and other than Scripture that was being cranked in to the picture. And so Paul was concerned that these Christians in Colossae might have been getting confused. And he didn't want them going around with an added burden on their backs. So Paul, in this letter, is seeking to reassure them. In the verses we've looked at previously in chapter 1, we've seen that Paul took great pains to reassure these folks that they had indeed received the whole gospel. There was nothing more to be added. They had it all. And it's important to remember also that the people Paul is writing to here are Christians. These are not unbelievers. 
These are people who've been washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. People who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus. People who have been changed. People who no longer walk as world-centered individuals, but people who walk as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, as Paul does in all of his letters, he starts out by telling them that he prays for them. Then he reminds them of the greatness of Jesus. Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, the architect, builder, and maintainer of everything. Everything we can see with our eyes, as well as everything we can't. Paul reminds the Colossian church that Jesus is bigger, greater, and more magnificent than anyone or anything they could possibly comprehend. Now, he knows they know these things. He just wants to remind them. And now it's time to talk about them. And in the three verses we're going to look at today, Paul shifts his attention to the Colossians themselves. It's time to remind them of the saving work that has been done in their own lives. And Paul takes this opportunity to remind the Colossians of what was, in other words, the things that used to be true of them before Jesus Christ redeemed them, followed by reminding them of what is, the things that are now true of them, now that Jesus Christ has redeemed them. Take a look at these opening verses. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Is that not a beautiful, beautiful sentence? Let me read it again. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I love that. That sentence summarizes the gospel. It really does. You have it all right there. I would recommend you memorize those verses. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Commit them to memory. Burn them on your heart. There's nothing more important for you to know than that. This ought to be something that pops up on your phone every hour as breaking news. It's the best news there is. It's the good news. It's the gospel. Now let's pick this apart and dig into it a little bit. We're going to look first at what was. In verse 21, Paul points out to them three components of behavior that used to characterize them before they came to faith in Christ. And he reminds them that once they were alienated... They were hostile in mind, and they were doing evil deeds. Now, what Paul is describing here is the sin nature in all of us. We're born with it. We inherited it from Adam and Eve. And contrary to what the average man or woman on the street out there, someone you see at the mall, would tell you, people are not basically good. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. Sin comes naturally to all of us. No one has to teach us how to sin. It's as much a part of our nature as breathing. Think about it. The one thing, sinning is the one thing you don't have to teach your kids how to do. Right? you got to teach them how to read. You have to teach them how to write. You have to teach them how to do math. You have to teach them how to ride a bike. But you don't have to teach them how to sin. I was thinking about that when uh, our right now youngest, until Elias gets here, our youngest granddaughter, Amelia, who's, who just turned two years old in August. And she's just the cutest little thing. And she's at that stage where she went from being uh, this cute, darling little baby to being a cute toddler just like that. And, you know, you, you know, when you see a baby, I, I had this with, when my daughter was born, and maybe you've had it. When I, when I saw my daughter for the first time and held her, I, I thought, this is the first sinless child. <laughs> There's no way she could sin. And I thought the same thing holding Amelia two years ago. Oh, she's just, and then when she got to be a toddler, oh, she's just so cute. You know, you just could burst. And, and, you know, she's still, she's walking around starting to put sentences together and she's just cute as anything. And one of her favorite toys is um, a little doll that she has called Baby Susie. And Baby Susie goes with Amelia everywhere. She, Amelia takes Baby Susie, you know, puts her in a, she's got a little high chair and she feeds Baby Susie and she lays Baby Susie down for a nap and she walks around with Baby Susie. And the other day on Thanksgiving when we were over at their house, you know, Amelia had Baby Susie and her older sister Katie wanted, wanted Baby Susie for some reason. And Amelia goes, says, no, no. And Katie kept grabbing at baby Susie. And Amelia kept pulling away. And finally, Amelia took baby Susie and hauled off and clubbed her sister with baby Susie. Now, who teaches her that? Nobody. That's her sin nature. She comes by that naturally. It's sin that causes this. Every human being is born with a terminal disease that we're going to call sin nature syndrome, SNS. We're going to coin a phrase here today. Everyone has it, and it's terminal. And you will die from it if it's not cured. So what are the effects of sin? Paul tells us here. Sin alienates you from God. To be alienated is to be separated. There's an estrangement. You aren't on speaking terms when you're alienated. And unfortunately, alienation is something that's all too common in our world today. We see it in a lot of families. Maybe some of you even have it in yours. Perhaps some of you experienced some painful reminders of alienation this past Thanksgiving on Thursday when you celebrated with your families. Maybe there was that one missing relative, the one who's been cut off from the rest of the family over some dispute. It's sad, and it happens. You have children who aren't speaking to parents, brothers who aren't speaking to brothers, sisters who won't talk to sisters. We often call it a falling out. Shake our heads and we say, yeah, Bob and his dad had a falling out. They haven't spoken for 20 years. That's alienation. 
It's a separation. And it's the same thing with any person living in their sin without Jesus Christ. There's an alienation from God, a separation. You and God aren't on speaking terms. Without Jesus, you are the missing person from God's thanksgiving table. This is talked about in many other places. Ephesians has a couple of passages. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And later on in Ephesians 4.17-19, through 19, it says, Now I say, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. But in addition to the alienation, you were also hostile to God. And this was more than just an apathy toward him. You are outright hostile toward him. You opposed him. You were against him. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Hostility is not submitting to God's law. You are being hostile when you run your life counter to the way God says you should run it. The Ten Commandments are the standard. If you don't keep those, all ten of them, Romans 8, 7 says that you are hostile to God. Hostility is rebellion. Humanity has rebelled against God. Human beings have refused to acknowledge or turn to God. They've put self above all else. Morals are reduced to whatever suits the individual rather than a loving obedience to God and gratitude for salvation. Hostility is a nasty thing. It's not very pleasant to be on the receiving end of hostility. Has that ever happened to you? There's a discomfort that comes with hostility. We don't want to be around people that don't like us. And likewise, we don't want to be around people we don't like. Hostility just feeds the alienation. It increases it. Hostility widens the gap of separation that exists. And it does that with our separation from God. And as a result of all this alienation and hostility, people act on their own impulses, resulting in all kinds of unspeakable evil. Now, when we think about evil deeds, what sort of things enter our mind? As I thought about this, I started kind of developing this in my mind, and this isn't something I read in a book anywhere. Uh, I always preface things at work. If someone comes to me and asks me how to do something, I'll, I'll say, I'll tell them how I do it, and I'll end it by saying, I don't know if that's right, but that's what I do. So I don't know if this is right, but I'm going to throw it out there. I kind of came to the conclusion that there's three kinds of evil deeds. And if you think about it, it's probably true. There are those evil deeds that are obviously evil to everyone, saved or unsaved. People without God or people, people who are saved by Jesus. There are those kinds of evil deeds that are obviously evil, but the obvious evil is only obvious to Christians. The rest of the world doesn't see it that way. And then there are those kinds of evil deeds that everyone 
saved and unsaved, seem to dismiss. The obviously evil, you don't have to look far for those. Uh, you know, what, what is it? We have a, a terrorist attack every other week. They're breaking into the news with, with a, a, a shooter in some place. We had a guy a couple days ago that blew himself up in a mosque in Egypt and killed over 200 people. You have a guy that drives a truck down a bike path in Manhattan, mowing people down, killing them. This guy that broke into a church a couple weeks ago and started systematically shooting every person in the church. I mean, that hits kind of home, close to home for us. Those things are obviously evil. And everyone, redeemed and unredeemed, it doesn't matter. Everyone agrees that those things are evil. But there's other kinds of evil deeds that are a little more nuanced. There's all kinds of evil, messed up behavior in society that society deems to be perfectly fine. But we who are believers know from God's word that these deeds are sinful and they don't honor God and they're wrong. You have people that aren't married to one another living together as if they were married. You have men marrying men, women marrying women. You have people who cheat on their spouses. And people say, well, that's just men being men. You have men who are addicted to pornography. You have people getting drunk and stoned. You have men who want to be women and women who want to be men. There is so much evil out there, messed up stuff, that society tells us, Christians, we not only have to accept it, but we have to celebrate it. Now that's messed up. It's evil deeds. But then, there's the kind of evil that often goes unnoticed. This is the evil that comes so naturally to us that we just dismiss it as normal. Things like little white lies. Eh, you know, what's it going to hurt? Not hurting anybody. Not telling the whole truth. Deception. You know, I saw this a, a, a while ago. I'm going to make a confession to you here that's actually kind of embarrassing, but you're my church family, so I can open up to you, and I'm, I feel safe doing this. But, you know, a lot of us, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but I, I have some old TV shows that are kind of like comfort shows to me from my childhood. And one of my, one of my comfort shows, one of my kind of the meatloaf of TV for me is the old Batman TV series. You remember that? Remember Batman? No, 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 no. You remember that? And, and you'd have the Joker, the Riddler would do some crime, and oh, they're all stumped at police headquarters. So Commissioner Gordon takes the cake plate thing off the phone and dials up Batman. And, you know, the phone rings at Wayne Manor, and Alfred is the bat phone, so, you know, and they, they go. And uh, usually uh, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson are playing chess or they're doing some esoteric thing that rich people do. And Alfred comes in and tells them it's the bat phone. Uh, and they jump up and, you know, you know, Dick Grayson's all, yeah, yeah, let's go. And they run into, all of a sudden, in comes Aunt Harriet. Remember Aunt Harriet, that little old lady? Oh, Dick and Bruce, where are you boys going now? And they, golly, Aunt Harriet, we're going fishing. You don't realize, they just lied to her. I thought about that. These are superheroes, and they're lying. <laughs> and that's okay. 
You know, it's just a little white lie, you know. And then they run in and flip Shakespeare's head back and turn the thing and they go down the bat poles and, and go off. But they, you know, they lied. It's lying. It's lying. Or how about other little sins we dismissed? How about overeating? Gluttony? How about greed? Hoarding more for yourself than you really need and not helping people around you who really need some of what you have plenty of? Or how about what might be the biggest one of all? Idolatry. You don't have to be bowing down to a golden calf or a festivus pole or a statue of the Virgin Mary to be guilty of idolatry, no. An idol is anything that you value more than God. Maybe it's that new iPhone 10 that you want so bad you can taste it. Or a new fly rod or the new high-tech driver that comes with a guarantee that you will reach the green on every tee shot. Or maybe your idol is your children or your grandchildren or your parents. Maybe it's your job or your status in your job. That promotion you really, really want, it can be anything. It's an idol. It takes the place of God in your life, and it's sin. It's a sin we tend to dismiss. All of these are evil deeds that arise from our alienation and hostility toward God. It's our sin nature, the S in S that we've been born with. Well, in verse 22, Jesus shows up and shakes everything up. And he takes us to what is now true. Verse 22 says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The most important words in verse 22 are the words, he has. He, meaning Jesus Christ, has done it all. You have done nothing. You can add nothing. You bring absolutely nothing into the equation other than your sin. Jesus Christ has done it all. Everything, once and for all, there is nothing left to be done. This isn't a matter of I do my part and God does his part, and then between the two of us working together, I'm saved. No, it's not a matter of being a good person, doing good deeds, going to church, reading the Bible, being kind, being generous. And then when I die, I'm assured of going to heaven because of how good a person I've been. No. This is all Jesus. This is Jesus being born to a virgin, to a human mother with God as his father. Him living a perfect, sinless life. And then him taking on sin. Taking the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future upon himself. Causing him to be nailed to a Roman cross, forsaken by his father. Suffering the very separation and alienation we just talked about that was rightfully ours, he took all that upon himself. That's what Paul is referring to when he says in verse 22 that Jesus did this in his body of flesh by his death. 
Well, the first thing that happens as a result of this is you have been reconciled to God. When people reconcile, there's a coming together. There's a mending of fences. A reuniting of things that were meant to be together but found themselves apart. We were separated, but now we're back together. We are reconciled. You see that many times in marriages. You know, you'll have a married couple that starts off great. They have the wedding and the honeymoon. But then they settle into married life, and as often happens, things become difficult. One person annoys the other one. The other one gets bugged by this habit or that habit. And before you know it, one of them says, enough, I'm out of here. And they file for divorce. Well, thankfully, it often takes many months for a divorce case to run its course through the court system. And this can leave times for reevaluating things. And that's when sometimes a couple will think about things and rethink it and call the divorce off. And they get back together. That's reconciliation. But not only does Christ reconcile you to God, but he presents you to God as holy. Now, we often think of holy as meaning extraordinarily good. When you talk about someone who's holy, uh, oh, they're, they're just, they're, they're, they're so good. But that's not what it means. The word holy means set apart. By Jesus' death and resurrection, you have been set apart from the rest of the human race. You are special. You aren't like everybody else. You're holy. John 1, 9 through 13 says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. But he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you are in Christ, pardoned by God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. You are adopted. Now think about that a minute. When you are in Christ, you become, you actually become a child of God. And God is king of the universe. He's king of the kingdom of heaven. He's king of everything. That makes you royalty. You are a member of the royal family of the kingdom of heaven. That is what Christ has done for you. But Jesus also presents you to God as blameless and above reproach without blame, without blemish, clean as a whistle. No mars, no marks, clean. In a court of law, your record would be wiped clean. You've received a pardon from the king because the penalty has been paid. Now we see a wonderful picture of this in the book of Revelation. Revelation is a book that's uh, kind of, unfortunately, it's one of the most neglected of the Bible. People are afraid of it, and that's because there's so much in it that's difficult to understand. But it's a wonderful book. It's, it's all about Jesus. The whole book is about Jesus. And in it, we see pictures of heaven. We see pictures of things to come. 
And we get to see what Christians have to look forward to when they leave this earth and die. Take a look at Revelation 7, 9 through 17. In this passage, the resurrected Christ is giving the apostle John a view of heaven. Now, if you know anything about Revelation, uh, John was in prison on the island of Patmos. It was a prison island off the coast of Greece in the Mediterranean. And uh, he was in prison there, and Jesus appeared to him years after the resurrection. And he takes John on a journey with him through space and time and shows him the future, and he shows him heaven. There are some wonderful depictions of heaven in the book of Revelation. And if you're avoiding the book, you're missing them. You got to read them. This is one of them here. John was instructed to write down everything he saw, which he did. And this is just a little bit of what he describes. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where do they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is what awaits you, believer. That is what's coming. That's what you have to look forward to. This is the real deal. If you're a Christian, trusting by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, you will spend eternity in the presence of God, worshiping him and giving him honor and glory, wearing white robes that have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. You will serve God day and night, and God himself will shelter you. You won't be hungry or thirsty anymore. The temperature will be perfect. No scorching heat. No need for air conditioners. No need for furnaces. The Lamb, Jesus Christ himself, will be your shepherd. He will guide you to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. 
There will be nothing there that would make you cry. And you will be presented to God as blameless and above reproach. That is the hope we have in Christ. And if any of you have recently or or not so recently even lost a loved one who belongs to Jesus and you miss him terribly, that's what this is what they're experiencing right now. This is it. And we're going to be with them soon. Well, what now? Let's look again at the passage. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. When reading verse 23... At first glance, it might appear that you being presented holy and blameless and above reproach is conditional upon you standing firm. It almost sounds like it's saying, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, then you will be presented to God holy, blameless, and above reproach. But is that what it's saying? Is it saying, if you stand firm, then you will live? And what exactly does it mean to not shift from your hope? What are we talking about when we say that? How many of you have ever heard of Harry R. Truman? Anybody? Okay, now I'm not talking about Harry S. Truman, the 33rd president of the United States. This is Harry R. Truman we're talking about here. Harry Randall Truman. Harry R. Truman was a crusty, kind of grumpy old guy with an opinion on just about everything who owned and operated a vacation lodge that was situated on Spirit Lake right in the middle of the Cascade Range in Washington State. Now, Harry's lodge was exactly what you'd picture. There were bright blue skies, deep blue water, dark green forests, and brilliant Brilliant snow-capped mountain peaks. Harry Truman loved that place. He poured his life into his lodge. It was like a picture postcard. He loved it. He loved the lake. He loved the mountains. He felt safe there. It was his domain. It was home. But in March of 1980, seismologists began detecting gentle seismic tremors inside one of, the, one of the mountains near Harry's Lodge. In fact, the tremors were coming from the biggest and most beautiful of the mountains visible from the lodge. And toward the end of March, there were whole swarms of earthquakes that were being picked up on the seismometers. Now, the mountains in the Cascade Range are volcanic, and they're part of the, what, what geologists call the Ring of Fire. It runs completely around the circumference of the Pacific Ocean Basin. And this is where most of the world's earthquakes and volcanoes are are located. And the mountain near Harry's Lodge where all this was happening happened to be a volcano named Mount St. Helens. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It had been dormant for 130 years 
There had been no activity since the 1850s. It had just been sitting there quietly, looking picturesque, peaceful, and beautiful. Until March of 1980, when all this seismic activity started happening. The quakes and the tremors kept going into April, and they were progressively getting stronger. There was pretty soon there were plumes of ash starting to spout from the top of the mountain. And they were staining. The brilliant white snow was kind of being turned a dirty gray. And there were landslides. And before too long, one side of the mountain up near the peak began to visibly bulge outward. And it was, it was, it was looking like a volcanic eruption was inevitable, like it was coming. Now, fortunately, it was a lot of warning. And the, the public emergency management officials were on their game, and they got going to evacuate people, get them out of there. And they, they had great success doing this. But there was one guy who wouldn't leave. Can you guess who that was? Our old buddy Harry. Harry wouldn't budge. And he became something of a celebrity in his not budging. Uh, you know, he was interviewed on the news just about every night. All the networks had people out there interviewing Harry. And uh, he started getting fan mail. People wrote songs and poems about him. School children wrote to him. This crusty, grumpy, 83-year-old man even started getting marriage proposals from people. And he was turning into quite the folk hero. But as the earthquakes grew stronger and the bulge on the side of the mountain grew bigger, it wasn't funny anymore. People started begging him to leave. The news reporters, Harry, you guy, this is neat, but you got to get out of here. Save your life. But Harry wouldn't budge. He was firm and he was steadfast. That mountain wouldn't dare blow up on me, he said. And this is an actual quote. I've walked that mountain for 50 years. I know her. If it erupts with lava, it's not going to get me. But it did get him. On Sunday morning, May 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens literally blew its top. The entire top half of the mountain exploded in a catastrophic volcanic eruption. One of the biggest volcanic eruptions in recorded history. It killed every living thing within a 15-mile radius of the mountain, including Harry R. Truman. Harry's body was never found. The Mount St. Helens Lodge, presumably with Harry and his pet cat still inside, was buried under hundreds of feet of volcanic ash and avalanche material. He was gone. But he stood his ground. He stood firm. He was stable and steadfast, and he didn't shift from the faith that he had that his mountain wouldn't hurt him. Harry Truman's faith was strong, but it was misplaced. Harry's faith was focused on a mountain, a volcano, a created object, Yet even his misplaced faith was sufficient to keep him standing firm and steadfast. It wasn't keeping him standing firm and steadfast against sin, but it did keep him standing firm in the hope that a volcanic eruption would not disrupt his life. Harry, S. Harry R. Truman had every expectation 
that he would go on living after Mount St. Helens erupted. Well, if even faith in untrustworthy things can keep a person standing firm, how much more will we be able to stand firm with our faith placed in the living God who created heaven and earth and sent his son to save us? Christian's faith is not in a created object that cannot save. Our faith is not in a volcano. It's likewise not in our works, our actions, our thoughts, or religious rituals. The Christian's faith doesn't lie in created things. The Christian's faith lies in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is the rock. Matthew 7, 24 through 27 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Faith built on the rock of Jesus Christ is faith that will last. It won't be swayed. It won't be tossed. It won't be taken in by every new teaching that comes along. Continuing in the faith over time, without wavering, is a really good indicator of genuine saving faith. The continuing itself doesn't save you, but faith that continues does save you. So don't be taken in by false teaching. Reject it. Jesus is all you need. Trust in him and him alone, and you will stand firm and steadfast. And that's one of the most reassuring things in life you can have. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Father, thank you so much for your son Jesus. And thank you for the gospel. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We love you. And as we wait for the day when we will be with you in your kingdom, praising you and worshiping you face to face, we ask you to sustain us and hold us fast and unwavering in the hope that awaits us in heaven. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.